All right, welcome everybody. We are excited to have our inaugural In the Weeds interviewee, Dan Fulkerson, on the show today. Um, I'm sure a majority of the people tuning in today know 2019 Dan and his successes and, and accomplishments and everything he's done. Um, today, though, we're going to take a little trip down memory lane. Um, I had the uh, privilege of speaking to a couple close personal and professional friends and family of Dan. Um, and we're going to really dig in the weeds of Dan's story, of how he got to where he is now, his struggle, his successes, um, and everything that made him into the person that's sitting here today. So I'd like to start by setting the stage with um, uh, a real a real throwback that um, was shared with me back on the ranch in Boise, Idaho. And going back to the roots, back to uh, not the the Jordan ones, not the uh, San Diego <laughs> Southern California lifestyle, um, and and really tapping into Dan's childhood and upbringing because, from what I heard, um, Dan was big in the irrigation game and the ranching game, and and even called his own mother a slave driver on the farm. Um, <laughs> So and maybe that plays into his work ethic and how he's gotten to where he is today. But um, I'm just going to throw you right into the, the fire real quick. And we're going to start from there and, and get up to speed to modern day. So as long take as us it's back. not a thousand questions about potato ranches that I've never seen, I'm good. So let's go. I, I don't think it's that. I think uh, the, I mean, I, I was able to or we, me and Sergio were able to walk over and listen to your interview the other the other night. And there was a little confusion on whether you were were milking cows or with the chickens or doing irrigation, exactly what it was you well, were doing. This confusion stems from the fact that everyone in California has no idea what the rest of the country does. So everyone thinks farm and they think, oh, Dan milks cows, which is not exactly the So case. let's let's set the record straight. All right. So I grew up in Eagle, Idaho, which is a small, small when I when I moved in, it was literally like a one light community. There was one school, one grocery store, not a named grocery store, like a market. And I grew up on a ranch and on a farm. And we had, you know, the whole deal. Horses, chickens, goats, um, and irrigation pipes that needed moving. So that that was the start, Eagle, Idaho. Hmm. Okay, so give a little insight into the the slave driving that your mom my mom mom's says amazing. you refer to all the time. <laughs> my mom's amazing. She's she literally is like one of my one of the closest people in my lives, and I'm so lucky to have my mother. But it was we were living on a on a ranch, and it was me, myself, my mom, and my two sisters. And my sisters are younger than me, and my mom's single mom at the time, and we have all of this stuff to take care of, and. It was a full-time job before school and after school, just taking care of the ranch. And so when I was, you know, what, fourth, fifth, sixth grade through probably 10th grade, that was, that was life was moving irrigation pipes. I did 10 chickens and get eggs. By the way, chickens are the worst creatures on earth. I don't know if you've ever messed with chickens. They're evil, evil things. Um, I would have to, they would attack me. And this was before school, so I'd have to get lids of trash cans, and I'd roll into the chicken coop with lids of trash cans, and you'd use them as, like, shields, because the chickens would just fly at you, and you'd have to, like, bat them down with lids of trash cans while you're trying to get the eggs. So that was <laughs> my 6.30 a.m. before you'd walk the, you know, mile to the bus stop and go to school. And that was, that was childhood. Huh. How many people know that about you? Um, life's changed a lot. No. A lot of people from like back home, obviously from Idaho know that, but from here, not many. I mean, it's, this is so night and day from where I've come from that it's, it's probably not a very well-known thing, but that was, you know, that's life in Idaho, which is, which is another reason why I left so quickly because, you know, once you do that for a certain period of time, you realize that that's, that's either some people are built for that or some people aren't built for that. And I, I can't do like, I've done the last days of manual labor that I will ever what do. What was the point that you realized uh, that life wasn't for you? Um, I didn't enjoy it at all. Like I hated every single second of it, but it was just, it was how you made money, how I, you know, my mom was a big believer in instilling work ethic. So there was nothing handed for free and there wasn't really that option 
financially regardless. So if I wanted something, I was, I was working for it. And you know, this is like, you know, when you're a kid, you're not working at fair rates. I'm getting like $4 to mow the yard. (laughs) What is this? Go rent a movie with it. Um, so yeah, it was just, it, it just got old and it made me realize that that it was not something that I was going to, you know, be able to do on a, a year to year basis. And so do you know what age that was at though? I don't know. Probably like, I mean, when I woke up to it, yeah, I hated it every day the whole time but I probably woke up to the fact that it was this was not for me 15 16 and then that was what honestly like the reason why I took school seriously I'm, I'm lucky I have a you know very good memory probably near photographic but I never really took school that t- like it was like whatever just show up and get it through but once I realized that the manual labor thing was not going to be uh, the life for me I started buckling down and making sure that I was dialed in on the academics and was going to be able to make a move once I was able to make a move at 18. Well, what was the, like the big, I don't want to say like aha moment, but cause you know, at that kind of age, you're not really having those aha moments quite yet, but what was the, uh, the influence as far as like what opened your mind to the rest of the world? Like, was it like a family trip out to like California or like you just like saw on TV, California, like Hollywood was a spot to be, or I think a lot of it was, you know, like, so obviously my parents got divorced and so it's single mom and I got to a place where my mom was always just survival mode, right? Like it was always just, my mom's the person that lives for her kids. She doesn't live for anyone else. Like it's, she doesn't, God knows the last time she's bought herself a pair of shoes and a pair of jeans, you know, (laughs) she's just that lady. So after, after watching someone like that in survival mode for so long, like it got to a place where I was like, I'm, I'm going to eventually be in a place where she'll never have to be in survival mode. And so I don't think it was any like outside trip or outside influence like that. It was just like the realization of at a point in time, like I'm going to, I'm going to make things happen where she's not going to have to worry about not having a safety net underneath her. And so I think that's probably the biggest motivating factor is just watching, watching my mom go through those years where, you know, you're, you're just trying to survive. And that was eye opening. Were there other like, you know, I guess, um, friends your age or people at school your age that were going similar things or were you, did you feel kind of isolated? No, I mean, situation? It, that's the thing is because it was in Eagle, Idaho, you like, everyone's doing that stuff. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like there's not, it wasn't like subdivisiony really, you know, early on in the days it's, it's since the community since grown, but it was, everyone was living in that kind of similar 4-H. My sisters are both like 4-H nuts and like that was the community. So everyone's used to doing the manual labor and used to doing the hard work. It's just, the difference is, is most people, stay in that, you know what I mean? Like they're, they turn 18 and then they, that's, they just, they kind of roll into that with life. And I think that that was where my, my deviant was, was I was like, I, I can do it now and I will do it now cause I have to do it, but it's not going to be for me forever. So your mentality was basically what set you apart from everybody else. Cause I mean, how many other people made it out? Few, yeah. few. And I, I knew I was going to get out. Like I, I, I always knew I was going to get out and it's, that sounds arrogant, but I, I always knew that there was something a lot bigger for me in a, you know, a, a bigger purpose. And I knew that my path was not going to end in Idaho. And that's to say nothing bad about people that have stayed, you know, and, and done the, you know, Boise, Idaho thing and have four kids and you know, to each his own. If they're happy, they're happy. But I knew that was never going to make me happy. I knew that that was, I, I needed to get out and I needed something bigger. So are you kind of the, to the friends or family that are back in Idaho, are you kind of the... That guy? Yeah. That guy. Yeah. <laughs> you can say it? Yeah. I'm that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like weird. celebrity status. Like Not celebrity, but people are... Kind of though. Confused. I mean, it's a small town. Yeah. Confused. I'm sure they follow you on social. If you guys have social media in Eagle, Idaho, I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, I think it's there. I feel like Dan walks, he gets back home, like off the plane and everybody's like, oh, here's a Hollywood celebrity. Bro, like, it's so cold. When I get off home, <laughs> again, I get back home. Like I literally walk out of like that turnaround in the airport. You know what I mean? Like the little thing. And I walk outside and I just keep walking right back in there because it's so bone chilling cold right now. But yeah, it's, it's been interesting to see the reaction. Like, um, a lot of people from back home reach out to me on social and ask me for life advice, which is really humbling and something that I take, you know, to heart a lot. And I try to spend the time to give sincere advice to anyone that asks because they, they look at it or they, you know, from their perception, they think that I have, you know, some sort of perspective to be able to add, to be able to get them shifted from the place that they're currently in. So I get a lot of people from back home reaching out just to pick my brain on stuff or 
business moves on things that they should do or, you know, life advice. And then unfortunately you do have the, you know, the other side of it where you get people that were like the biggest assholes, like of all time to you Mm -hmm. in high school that treated you like shit. And then you'll get a message going, Hey bro, I'm in a really bad place. Can I get five grand for uh, a, and it's like, you were a dick then. Like, what do you (laughs) think? what, what, What do you say? I mean, or I do you not ghost. say anything? I guess. Yeah. I just, I mean, what, what are you supposed to say? You know, mm-hmm. everyone's like back then when, when you were in that time, you're like, I can't wait to be in this place. And then when you need something for me, I'm going to rub it. Once you're there, like I'm, I'm not going to rub anything into anyone, but I'm mm-hmm. also not going to be, you know, I know who you were and mm-hmm. I'm not going to forget who you were. And going I, back I'm to a the... big believer in that. Like I, I remember the people that were there for me and I remember the people that weren't there for me in, mm-hmm. in all aspects of life like I know the people when I was valeting at Sting nightclub I know the people that knew my name and didn't call me chief bud and boss every time that they saw me <laughs> and I know the people that treated me like I was a valet and I wasn't doing shit with my life and I I remember that till this day hmm. not gonna name names right here but. oh we're gonna get all over <laughs> that subject here in a little bit what were you gonna say uh going back to the uh the first group of people messaging you what is the uh I guess, what's the typical response that you give to people? I try to spend the time to not give like a, a blanket, um, what would you say, template response? Mm-hmm. Like I will, depending upon what it is, like business advice, life advice, how do I, you know, a lot of times it's motivation. Like mm-hmm. how do you stay so on top of your hustle? How are you grinding every day consistently? I think that's a big part of the reason that i I've set myself aside is I will outwork anyone and it's because I love what I do. And so a lot of people come to me for motivation advice, but what I'll try to do is I'll, I'll dig into what they're doing. I'll look back at their past social. I'll look back at their past Facebook. And obviously that doesn't give you full insight, but at least gives me enough to be able to give them something of substance. And then from there, I just try to give real advice that works in my life. And I, I think that a lot of people are caught up in this rat race of life and they don't really know what, you know, why they're motivated to do certain things or you know what's going to truly fulfill them at the end of the day and you have to start to break down yourself and unfortunately and pete and i talk about this is everyone gets going so fast that there's a lot of times where you don't have time to break down those things and then you just get in this rut of life and you don't know how to get out of it so i i try to give advice that's specific to the situation i've been in those ruts even though you know thank god i found financial success i've had my my very difficult you know pits and ruts and moments that I thought were desperate in my end and I, I, I now can reflect on them and see how I got out of them and I try to pass that advice on. Did you, mm. um, did you figure out what your career path was going to be early on or did it take you some time to figure that out? So I was that guy that was chasing money my whole like early life, you know what I mean? Mm. Like the classic, like what do you want to do when you get older? Well, I'm going to be a lawyer because that will <laughs> equate to making a ton of cash. Like, and that was like the only thing that I really had that was pushing me was Again, I think it goes back to the mom thing. I think it goes back to the, you know, whatever you want to call it, that I was trying to, you know, prove something to someone, my dad, I don't know, but it was money. Like it wasn't, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer from early age. Like I got the opportunity to, uh, to travel abroad and study at Oxford University in England. And that's when I decided I was going to go to law school. But it was not like a, the right reason. It wasn't a, I'm so passionate about the law and I, I want to do this for the rest of my life. It was, this is a means to an end to be able to make a lot of money. It wasn't until mm. later on that I woke up to the fact that that is not going to be a sustainable drive. Yeah. Because, I mean, a lot of people go that route. For sure. They, they're chasing the financial aspect of it. And then they, they end up falling out of love of it, or and they realize it's not for them. You know how many people that I went to law school with that I run into in their fucking miserable like Mm -hmm. i mean miserable and even if they're doing well financially and i'll ask them straight up i'm like so if you could go back in time would you go to law school most of them are like absolutely not i'd do something else Mm -hmm. like it's people go into my industry for the wrong reasons and they find themselves that's why we have the highest addiction depression alcoholism drug use cheating on your wife rate of most professions like Mm -hmm. that's it's because people go into it for money and they find unhappiness because it's not, it's not a, a driving passion for him, unfortunately. So I, I got to add something to that, that, uh, your, your mom actually said, speaking about being a lawyer early on, yeah. she said, even as a kid, 
there was never an argument she could win against you. I dominated. <laughs> Even as a kid. I dominated. So I feel like there was a little writing on the wall early on. When I'd get in trouble, I'd just like smirk because I knew that it was it's only a matter of time. That's exactly so what she said. Right and you would talk your way it. out of it. Yeah. And all of a sudden, she knows she's like, I got nothing against this kid now. So the best thing, and I don't know, this probably shouldn't be public, but whatever. Um, <laughs> we, we went to this high school party when we were, I think it was like junior year and it got raided by the cops. So everyone just grabbed all the booze that they could, right? Because it was like, I, at the time, like the cops are coming, like you jump a back <laughs> fence, like grab yeah. a bottle and roll. So all of the bottles were stored at my house, right? And so I had like eight unopened bottles of booze that were stolen in this <laughs> trunk underneath my bed, okay? And it was literally the next week after that we this happens, my mom goes through my room and she finds all these bottles. And my mom's not like nosy mom. It was just horrible life happenstance sure. timing, right? Yeah. You know how it works. So she finds eight bottles of booze and she thinks I'm like this closet alcoholic, right? Like literally <laughs> like, like what's going on has like a full like panic attack. Like, so what was the argument? Well, what the argument was she, ma she made me go to counseling, right? Like she, <laughs> she made me go to counseling. So I go and see this That's counselor. That's the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, in the situation it is, sure. but so I go and see the, and I tell the counselor exactly what happened. I'm like, this is what happened. This is what went down. I'm like, I'm the guy that's getting straight A's. I don't really drink. I still don't really drink. Like I'm just, you know, I'm a good kid. I've never gotten arrested. Never By the end of the counseling session, my counselor was lecturing my mother on why <laughs> she brought me to the counselor. In the ride home, my mom goes, that was a really bad idea. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was, uh, I've always, I've always been able to use my mouth to get out of most situations. Going, going back a little bit to what you said uh, earlier about how you uh, kind of decided when you were at Oxford um, that the law was kind of going to be your life, but you were chasing the financial aspect of it. Do you, do you think it's a bit of um, just luck that you happen to be chasing this career for 1000%. the financial aspect, but ended up falling in love with it? Um, was that a luck thing or do you believe that that was more of a, you put your head down and, got really good at the craft and were able to create that passion. I think it's a thousand percent lucky, which is why I am so outspoken with trying to get people to chase things that aren't about money. Because mm -hmm. I think I'm, I'm the rare, rare one that was able to find happiness luckily in a field that I got into for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I think it was a thousand percent lucky. Um, I know attorneys that are absolutely fantastic at their craft that are so, so gifted and that just absolutely hate it. So I don't think it necessarily has to do with talent. Thank God I'm really good at what I do, you know, I, and sure that adds, um, to my life, but the reason why I'm as happy as I am is because I've been able to wrap all the things in my life that I love and I truly do enjoy helping people. And I also enjoy being able to disrupt an industry that really needed to be disrupted. <clears throat> and I think that that's probably part of it that gives me as much passion as even the, the practice is being able to do things such a different way in an industry that needed change so badly. That's, that's my fulfillment. Like that's what I get to wake up every day. Like knowing that I'm going to change the way that people look at personal injury attorneys. It's not going to be the sleazy, slimy car accident, you know, smile and show me, you know, tell you whatever you want to hear to get you to get what I need out of it. Like I'm going to change the way that this industry works. And that's my passion. Do you feel like it's changing? Yeah, slowly. Um, yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of scummy, scummy personal injury attorneys that need to retire. But I think because we've come in and done it the way that we have that we're, we're setting precedent where it's like, you're either going to change and you're going to do it a different way, or we're going to, we're going to destroy you. Like we're going to take you mm -hmm. out of business. And I've watched where, you know, in three years we've grown this thing and no one's grown a firm this fast. I mean, I, 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 I do research on this stuff. I love market research. No one has been able to grow a, a firm in a market like San Diego as fast as we have. And they're, competition's feeling it and they're watching what we're doing and they're realizing that if they don't switch how they do it and they don't switch how they operate, that they're not going to be in business. It's a blockbuster situation. I think that was the next question is, are you, are you starting to see that, the imitation versus flattery? Like people oh, starting to imitate what you were from day one. Like when we started, like, there's firms that have no concept, like the firm I left, for example, all they do is just follow me and do everything that we do, which is mm. fine. I just look at it and laugh because I know that at the end of the day, and a lot of people would be irritated by it. You know, a mm. lot of people would be like, these are my ideas. Why are you doing this? You've never done this before. 
one, I know they can't execute. Two, whatever. You know what I mean? At the end mm -hmm. of the day, the market's going to decide. I know I'm sincere. I know that most people aren't. So mm -hmm. I just let the rest of it figure itself out and keep doing what I'm going to do. I don't like looking over in other, anyone else's lane. It's never gotten me anywhere in my life. But it also, it's now become big enough where I watch enough people doing it where it's become a form of flattery. Mm -hmm. Like I was, I got so much shit from other attorneys when we rolled out with all these shirts and swag and bulldog stuff. People are like, what are you doing? Opening up a clothing line? Like, oh, ha, 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 ha. And now I go to these attorney events and everyone's got like their custom law firm hoodies <laughs> and shit. And I'm like, oh, I know where this came from. Like, you, there's no way that you would have ever had like the ability or the freedom or let yourself do that. But because we did it and did it so loudly, now you feel like it's okay. I, I feel like as, as a customer or a client, people can sniff that out too. They can sniff out whether it's coming from a good place or if you're kind of imitating or just trying to play the role or put up a front. I agree. Um, and, and I know, shoot, man, since we, we've known each other, I don't think there's a weekend I don't call you on a Saturday or Sunday that you're not in the office or working or not tending to a client personally, going to like the hospital, going to their house, their personal visits. So I, I, I would wager, and I don't know any other personal injury firms personally, that they're not doing stuff like that. They might be doing other stuff that you, you see from from a marketing standpoint, from social media, from from everything out there in the, in the public's eye. But like, and, and I know the one day, this was maybe six months ago, I'm, I'm driving down uh, Pacific Beach, a road in Pacific Beach, and I get behind his car, wrapped car, and I, I race up on him and uh, try to freak him out a little bit. Race up I, on me. It was the most reckless driving I've seen in a long <laughs> time. <laughs> well, and it's a Sunday afternoon, and, and I'm coming back, heading downtown. I race up on him, and then I end up calling him saying, hey, because he didn't know it was my, my car. I'm like, hey, that was me, by the way. <laughs> and uh, he was coming back from Trader Joe's picking up groceries for one of his clients who can like who was who was laid up had some sort of I, I forget the case at the time. Uh, but Sunday fractured afternoon, fractured his and entire femur in three different places, and yeah, yeah it was a bad situation. I I take a lot of pride in what I do, but more than that, like I get to help a lot of really really nice people, like mm -hmm. really nice people, and. My mom's, uh, you know, uh, works in the medical field. My sister works in the medical field. That's kind of like my, my family background, and I wanted nothing to do with being a doctor. But this brings in both sides of it, and I take it very seriously when I have someone that puts their trust and faith in me to see them through a really, really traumatic situation to the other side. And I believe in doing it personally. I think most attorneys hire people to do it, hire paralegals, hire staff. That's not who they hired. They hired me. I'm going to mm -hmm. do it. I'm going to do it myself and I'm going to do it the right way. And I do think that there's a personal part to it as well. When you're injured in an accident, especially that guy, he doesn't have any family. You know what I mean? Like it's one thing I could have like Amazon food delivered to him and that it would get him what he needs. But me doing that, showing up, giving him a hug, telling him, hey, if you need anything, give me a call. It's going to help him when he's laying there in bed at night at 3 a.m., not able to sleep because he's in so much pain. He's going to know that there's someone out there that's got his back. Mm -hmm. And if I was in that situation, that's what I would want. And so I'm just, tr I'm, I'm just trying to do everything the right way, like everything the right way from the marketing to the operations to how we treat people. I've seen it done so poorly and I've seen the other side of it and it scared me so bad that I'm just, that's, that's my, that's my dedication is I'm, I'm going to build this thing the right way. We're going to do it the right way and it's going to change the way people look at it. That's great, man. Do you think being, um, you know, as young as you are, do you think that gives you an advantage over everybody else in your Fuck industry? Fuck yes. All these dinosaurs. <laughs> these All guys, these dinosaurs. No, no apologies for that either. Because I, I tell these guys, I'm like, you're in the most archaic, like, unchanged industry. And you're also scared of change. I've had attorneys walk up to me and they know we're crushing. And they go, you know, you're disparaging the legal profession with advertising. And I'm like, it's 2019. There's no rule that I can't advertise. You know what is going to happen? You are going to be Blockbuster. And they don't get it. They're like, Blockbuster? <laughs> and I'm like, it's gone. Like, it's no, like, it doesn't exist anymore because they thought they could keep doing things the same way. And you can't. And that's another reason I've gotten a huge advantage is because I was okay with breaking all of the norms. Mm -hmm. And that's where it got to. When we started, it literally, and you can ask Paul, it was, this was my litmus test. 
Would a normal 55-year-old attorney understand it? If the answer is yes, we're probably not interested. If the answer is no, <laughs> let's go. Like, And that's what it was because it was just... I was so sick of watching it be done the same way that it was time to change it up and all across the board. Now, I mean, on, on the flip side of it, what are some cons about being as young as you are in this specific industry? Um, I mean, I, I guess the, the negative would be there's going to be hate, you know what I mean? Like, but I think that's natural. You know, anyone that's doing things the right way and well, there's going to be the people that, you know, are, are going to throw, going to throw stones, which is, I'm totally fine with. Um, the other thing is, is, you know, for me, it's been taking on a lot at once. Like the growth has been a little overwhelming. So I think I lose, lose myself in my, my life balance a lot in it because I haven't been able to, uh, balance my personal as well as I'd like to with the massive, massive growth on the business end. So I think that that's been a little bit of a, a, a downfall on my end that I need to pay more attention to is my life balance and my, my personal side of mm -hmm. things. Do you ever feel like you've missed out on anything because of what you've been building? I was at Stingery Nightclub for literally eight years started Thursday, Friday and Saturday, and then went to Friday and Saturday night from nine, uh, nine at night until three in the morning. I didn't have a social life. Mm -hmm. Like all my friends would roll through wasted, giving me shit as I stood at the valet stand. That's when I'd see my friends. Like I didn't have a social life. I missed out on most of my twenties. I started, I started sting when I was 20 years old. So yeah. I didn't have, you know, until I was 29, I didn't go out. I didn't do the club thing there. That was, it was all a sacrifice. Looking back on it, well worth it. At the time, it was miserable. It was survival mode. I just didn't want to go back to Idaho. <laughs> that was it. I think that's a good segue because I, I, we really want to dig into that part of your life when you were at Sting um, in your master's program um, and everything you're doing. Because I feel like that truly, from what I've learned about you personally, and then talking to a couple people I have, like that was when you were definitely in the weeds. Um, so I think that's a great segue into um, that, that part ramen, of your life. That ramen noodle living. Definitely. <laughs> As I said, getting right into the hardcore in the weeds portion of your story. Um, Dan, actually, you got your JD M MBA at the same time. Yep. And was working at what was formerly known as Stingery Nightclub, which was a major nightclub in downtown San the Diego. The nightclub. It was the... Still the nightclub. By far the nightclub. Um, they could open up Sting tomorrow. It would crush everything. 100%. <laughs> I always say it's the greatest club of all time. That's what That's everyone my says. my favorite of all time. It had about a decade decade run that did extremely well. Mm -hmm. And you were a valet there. So you were working Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Yep. Um, MBA, JD, Cal Western, SDSU. Cal West School of Law. And then up to San Diego State in the evenings for my master's program. And then to Stingery for the work grind. Have you met anybody else that's done that at the same time? Um, those, yeah, well, I've met people that's that crazy. Have, I've met people that have done it in the same time because it's a program that's offered. The difference is, is most people, how they do it, it's a four year program. So you do basically a year of law, your first year of the MBA, and then the final two years you do them combined, right? I, I couldn't do that because it, the living expenses in, in San Diego were so phenomenal and I was so broke that I just had to do them both at the same time. So I did them both in two and a half years. So I didn't do the mm -hmm. year on year, you know, year here, year here, and then combined. I just did straight combined programs from the beginning. So I would start my law degree at 8 a.m. and then I would go till like 3.30 and then I would drive up to state and start at like 4.15 and I'd go to like 9.30 and then on nights that I had to go to Sting, I'd go straight to Sting. So it was just a constant grind. That's insane, man. It was nuts. It was a, it was a, it was the, the longest two and a half years of my entire life. Like I, I can't even tell you I had ulcers. Like I, my body was hated me, but I didn't, I didn't have a choice. Like it was, if I was going to do them, I had to do it that way. So I got a good question for you. Ask. Um, cause I want to hear more about the law degree and being up at SDSU, but I'm really interested about the valet portion. Yep. And, uh, and I feel like this was a foreshadow of your entrepreneurial hustling ambition, but I was told not only were you a great valet, Oh, I, I was the best incredible valet, valet. <laughs> still an incredible parallel Parker, but I also heard you had a little side hustle on the valet business that you would, and let me know if I, I got this straight. Okay. You would scout parking spots that were right in front or next to the club. And you actually invested and had your own cones. And in a, when a parking spot would open up, 
you'd go cone it off or you'd put your vehicle in it. And then night of, you can stop me if I'm wrong. Then night of. So far, this is very accurate. (laughs) One of your cone spaces, you would sell as a premium or upgrade to to one of the the valet clients. Yeah, so (laughs) it's extremely accurate. Um, What I would do is I would cone off spaces right when I'd get there when they would be in front of the club because you would always have the dudes that would roll through at like 11.45, 12 after the club's just popping, right? And they would come through and they would want their cars right up front. And they would always ask, I want my car right up front. Well, there's a price to that. So the club would get their money. What was the price? It would depend on supply and demand. You know what I mean? Like, it would depend on <laughs> how many spots on the I bush. Had. What, was the, what was the normal price? What was the normal going rate? Pr- normal price was about fifty bucks a car. Oh, that's for, nothing for a spot up front. So I'd get thirty a pop, right? But when you'd have those last like three or four spots come in, come open, those would go for like, you know, seventy bucks a spot, a hundred bucks a spot. So a lot of the chargers who would come through at like twelve thirty and they wanted their Ferrari right up front. That's, you know, that's a C note and, and the, no the club deal. never stepped in and said, Hey Dan, I see this little business you got going here. The club knew it and loved it because they, the <laughs> VIPs were so happy. <laughs> their whips were always right up front and they got their money. Cause I would always cut the club, you know, whatever their, whatever the normal charge was, they'd get their cash. And then the rest was a tip for me. The other thing was, is they would get charged per, per car that got parked in their garage and none of these cars were getting parked in the garage, oh, okay. so they saved the overhead there. Huh. So it was just it was a, it was a hustle that worked very very well for everyone, and I made incredible tips and made a lot of friends with really cool people. But yeah, that was a thousand percent the hustle at Sting was do you, do you have selling like a, spots. Do you have like a highlight or either a highlight or a horror story from your valet days? So I had all my roommates working for me. Like I was the valet captain, right? But I had all my boys working for me. So we had like four. For sure entrepreneurial. Come yeah, on. We had like, we had like, so my four roommates were working for me and I have my one friend that I came with from Idaho, right? So it, he's like, like my little brother, basically. I've just always taken care of this guy. And so I gave him the job as the valet, but he was always the guy, everyone has this friend, that you knew was going to fuck shit up, right? Like, <laughs> like you knew without a doubt. You want to call him out on here? Bobby Rolandi, you <laughs> know I'm talking to you, man. He worked at Laporta for years, so if anyone knows him, this is a true story. So the one night, I, I was a control freak, so I'd always stay, and it was like ju- like playing memory, like, I have 15 keys, where'd I park these cars? And they're all like top-end cars, but that was part of my mind. I would always be able to remember exactly where things were parked and exactly where cars were. One night, I wanted to leave early for a birthday party, I left Bobby in charge. I knew from day one, <laughs> it was the worst idea that I could have. This dude lost a $150,000 Porsche in an hour, in an hour. And, and same night, Marshall Falk pulls up and he goes, I'm sorry, bro. We're full. And I'm like, Oh great. Like this is just a really fun Saturday. So yeah, that was the last time Bobby was in charge. I love you, Bob. But (laughs) so there was, there was always good times. I got, uh, I got punched by a, uh, a pimp because I didn't get his car fast enough. That was fun. Um, Sean, Mer- Sean Merriman's manager helped me out of that situation because cops all came and they're like, do you want to press charges? And of course I'm like, yeah. And I remember Chris Resta's like, Dan, you do not want to press charges. Like, move on with life. So yeah, there was always, there was always interesting times. Uh, it's staying, it was never a dull night. I actually miss it. Like I, for a couple years afterwards, I would just, I would roll through, I replaced myself with another valet and I would just roll through like on a Saturday night and just kind of hang out at the stand and bullshit. Cause it was just, <laughs> it was so normal life that it was hard to pull yourself out of. And the relationships that I made, I mean, I, I still have so many good friends and connections from those sting days and from the industry days. And that's what I realized. That's why I love doing so much work still in the industries because those those relationships are t- so tight net. Mm-hmm. And I've met some of the most sincere, real people working at sting, like the Ricos of the world and big games of the world. And I mean, it, it really just legitimate human beings that I was able to meet and people that are my friends. Like, like I said, I remember the guys that would never know my name that would be, Hey, tiger park my car. Hey, you know, and then I would remember the guys that would stop and go, Hey Dan, how'd that last? Tesco. Oh, what are you studying for now? Mm. Those are the guys that are my friends now, you Mm -hmm. know, because they saw that I was doing more than just being a valet where the other guys would just treat me like shit because I was just a valet. It's also the reason why I treat everyone in my life with respect. And no matter what you do in life, 
there's no levels to this game. Like mm-hmm. everyone deserves to be treated with kindness and respect and there's no one that's above anyone else. And that's where I learned that was that what's like, no matter how much money you have, what you do in life, what gives you the place that you can talk down to someone else or that you can treat someone else like they're less than you. It just doesn't make sense to me. And I got to see it because I was the one that was getting treated like shit. Sure. So that was, that was a huge blessing for me. I think there was, cause we have a, a mutual friend who I think you met in the valet days, <clears throat> Jeff dish. dish. Yeah. And I heard an interesting story and I don't know if it was right that he was a, a valet client but then one day when you were out of the valet business, he pulls up to you at a stop sign, assuming the Ferrari that you're in driving was you were on the job, yep. but it's actually your own. I don't he know, did. I don't know if the car is right. He just, no, it was. And it he was, looked over at you, kind of gave you the, the nod and said something to the tune of like, you working or whatnot? And you're like, no, man, this is my car. And it was like, pull over. We got to talk. Yeah, what the hell is going on? It was, it was like, <laughs> he just goes, he goes what the fuck happened? (laughs) (laughs) So that was how Jeff and I recalled. But Jeff was one of those dudes that he would. He would roll through and, you know, he was doing really well in real estate back then and he'd pull up his 750 and I'd always charge him extra to leave it up front. (laughs) But he would roll through and and he'd he'd chop it up and he would ask me about my life and we got to be friends. And so then afterwards, yeah, when I did, I I rolled up on him in a stoplight. My, uh, I think it was my first Ferrari. It was a Ferrari California. And my top down and Jeff just looks over. He's like, what's up, man? Where are you working today? I'm like, no, this is mine. And it was, uh, uh, yeah, that was where we reconnected and it was a a funny time. Did you have a lot of that from other people too? Yeah, yeah. Uh, And it was... I mean, the car thing was stupid. I don't know why. Like, it was always a gold to own a Ferrari before I was 30. Now I've, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I made all those stupid decisions because I realize how stupid they are and I don't have to make them again in life. And I think a lot of people chase that shit their whole lives. Like, I've seen people that are like 55 years old and they're like, yeah, now I can finally refinance my house and buy a Corvette. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, bro, you have no idea how unhappy you're going to be in two months when you realize you've lived your whole life to try to do something that's not going to bring you a whole lot of happiness. And... I'm very lucky that I got to figure that out early on with my stupid car decisions. But yeah, I made a lot of really stupid car decisions early on. And as a result, people were a little bit taken back by uh, the lifestyle change. And it was a little bit drastic. But, you know, you live and you learn. I'm curious what your your thought is on kind of the whole subject that you just brought up right now. Like uh, you and I, we've gotten to know each other a lot more in the past six months. And um, a lot of what you've I've heard you say is, you know, like, bought really nice cars. I've had nice stuff. Um, none of that really matters. It's, you know, like what you're doing in life that really matters and fulfills you. What, what is your thought as far as like having nice things? And there's a lot of kids out there or like just people in general who are quote unquote in the weeds and, um, are like, yeah, like they're that guy. Like I want to have a Ferrari before I'm 30 years old. Um, what, what is your take on that as far as like, there's nothing wrong with having no. nice things. Um, and I still buy nice things. Like I buy way too many pairs of Jordans, like all the time. So I get like, but I, I, I love the question because I think what it is, is, is it's a self-awareness. It's a self-awareness of there's a difference between having nice things. And there's a difference between thinking that nice things are going to make you happy. And I think that that's, that's the part that people get confused on is they think that by buying material things that it's going to elevate their level of happiness in life. And it doesn't do shit. And if it does anything, it actually works the other way because you realize that it doesn't do shit and then it can kind of be depressing in a place because if you don't, if you're not tapped into the core of what's going to make you happy, you start to then search for, well, if I can't buy myself out of this, how am I going to get out of this? You you follow me? Mm -hmm. And so that was my, that was my eye opener was I realized that what buying those, what, what buying things did was it would peak my happiness, right? So I'd have like a little spike and it'd be really cool. Cause you'd get to show it off and you'd want to wake up the next day and drive it and do, you know, whatever. But a month later I was right back down to my baseline. And so I just got to a place where I realized that the, the stuff didn't matter. It was for other people. It didn't, it never did anything for me. You know what I mean? It was never a, Oh, now I'm fulfilled ever. And so once I woke up to that, it was a really easy change. And the other thing is, is I saw, I saw what money can do to people in a bad way. And I saw how money can ruin people in a bad way. And once you see that, it, it scars you for life. Like I watch people that I had respect for change into people that I have no respect for. And that was a huge eye opener for me where it was like, 
no matter what, the money isn't going to change shit. Like the money is there to help with things and to help make life easier and to help other people. That's a big part of it. It's, it's not just there for you. This is a pay it forward type of thing. Like if you get something, you should use it to help other people get things. That's just the way life works. But I just started to see things a different way. And now I don't work for money. Like I, that sounds so crazy, but I don't work for money. I don't do things for money. I don't, I don't make make life moves for money. I make life moves based on the things that I think will add happiness to my life. And usually, because I'm as passionate about those things as I am, those come with success, which equates to money. But it's not the money that's pushing me anymore. Where where did you get the, I guess for lack of a better word, where did you get the balls to think that way? Because most people are going to think, like, hear what you just said right now. Like, that's bullshit. Right, yeah, yeah that's, that's bullshit. Like, that's cool. Like, that's easy mm-hmm. for him to say he drives a Ferrari every day. Like, yep. you know, it's easy for him to make those kinds of decisions not based on money because he's got plenty of it. But, like, where, like, whether that was, like, a shift in your life or some tra- traumatic experience, like, where does that that happen that you are able to be like, I'm not going to make a decision based on like how much money I'm going to make. It's I'm going to make this decision because it's something I want to do. Traumatic experience would probably be the best way to say it. Um, again, I've, I've seen money change people. I woke up probably about three years ago and was making a million bucks a year plus and had all these things, you know, these cars and investment properties and a you know million dollar condo in little Italy and you know what you should be on top of the world and I was just hollow like I wasn't happy with what I was doing every day I wasn't happy with the people that were in my life that were that I was surrounded by every day like I just knew it was negative influences and people that I needed to separate myself from and I literally walked away from everything because I knew I just needed to make a change. And there was a couple couple things that, you know, were the catalyst for that. One was a book, one was, you know, a life event, but I I walked away on a Tuesday. Like no no plan, no like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to roll out. I'm going to start Bottle Fulkerson. We're going to bulldog brand. <laughs> like there was none of that. It was a this is going to kill me. I'm going to get cancer. I can't do this anymore. I have to change. And so I walked away not knowing what was going to happen, whether I was going to end up back in Idaho, whether I was going to be able to make it and doing it like that with no safety net, the rest of it just kind of figured itself out. Can we talk about those experiences that were the catalyst for that? Um, I'll say this. What's the best way to put it? I, I realized that my industry, this goes back to my industry needing change. I realized that, that I was a part of the problem in my industry. Mm. The people that, the way I was run, was helping run a business, the, the, the people I was around, I was contributing to what I think needs to change in my industry. And when you look yourself in the mirror and realize that, you know, that, that was really, really hard for me. To, to realize that I, I was probably a part of the problem because of where I was at. And so that that's probably the most tactful way to put it. I could definitely mm. give way more details on, you know, things I learned and things I saw that made me come to that realization. But it was a realization that I wasn't going to be able to have respect for myself with where I was in life at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I had to make a move. And it's the best move I've ever made in my life. And I didn't, I didn't make a dollar for 18 months after I like 18 months didn't make a single penny and I can still say it's the best move I've ever made in my entire life. I think that, um, it's definitely those hard experiences. It's like a, it's like a big, like a 10 foot wall. It's like somebody comes up to you in life and it's like, it would be really difficult to climb over this 10 foot wall and get past this. But on the other side, it tends to be something that becomes the best experience of somebody's life. Um, and so I, I think that that is probably, a really big message of this whole thing is that like getting over those big walls are what's going to, you know, making those hard decisions is what's going to lead to something bigger and better. Yeah. And, and once you climb that wall, you know, you're able to climb that wall. Mm-hmm. And then the next wall isn't that big of a deal, you mm-hmm. know? And, and that's why fires in my life are every day. And I just don't even stress on them anymore because there's always going to be an answer and you always figure it out. But I do think that it's that perspective that is the switch mm-hmm. where you just realize that, one, there's always going to be sacrifice required. 
nothing in this life is free. I feel like that's a big part of our, you know, our problem right now as a society is people want things that come quick and people want things that come free. And that's not how things work. I wa I interview other attorneys and I, you know, trying to bring people in and they think that I'm going to work 40 hours. And like, that's not like I'm working 80, hundred <laughs> hours. Like the, if you want something in this life, you're going to kill yourself to get it. And if not, someone else will, and then they'll get it. Like, and that's just the way that it works. And so I think that it's the realization that you're going to have to sacrifice things in your life and the fact that if you truly know I've always known that I was going to be able to do things at a different level I didn't know where that knowledge came from or where that confidence came from but I've always just known it and I've never let anything kill that you know what I mean like that's always just been there I remember I pulled my grandfather aside when I was like and my grandfather kind of raised me like he was like the guy that taught me how to like tie a tie shave and like do all these things in life. And I remember I pulled him aside when I was like 17 years old and I told him and I didn't know how to say it, but I'm like, I know I'm supposed to do something bigger. You know, like I know that I was I'm I'm built for something bigger. And he was like, he straight said, like first things out of his mouth, he goes, grandson, I know you are, too. Don't ever forget that. And that's something I think about all the time because I think you have to have that confidence and that knowledge and you have to let's call it whatever stupid secret of life shit you want to call it. But there is something to that, that internal confidence and knowledge that you know that you're going to get someplace. I don't care what anyone else said. I knew I was going to get someplace. And I knew when I started Bada Fulkerson and I knew when it came together that it was going to be successful. Even with everyone telling me I was crazy. I had people that I'd known for years that were like, you left a million dollar gig. What are you doing? <laughs> this is the stupidest thing. They were my friends. I just laugh because I knew I was going to crush. I knew it was the right move. I knew it was going to take over. No one else did. Everyone else thought it was silly. That's cool. I didn't need anyone else's opinions to make that decision. I fucking knew it was going to work. Going back to when... You know, when you're working at Stingery, you're doing the whole valet thing. You know, you you got roommates. I, I sold my shirt for $300, by the way, one night. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real so, story. I mean, uh, obviously now you have, um, you get fulfillment in your hat and you uh, a lot of your happiness comes from what you do. You love what you do. Yep. But back then, I mean, you, the money's not coming in. You know, you're, you're, you're putting yourself through the school. You're working. You're draining yourself. Yep. Where do you find a fulfillment? Where do you find happiness during those those days? Um, I think, you know, f friends are a big part of it. Like you got to surround yourself with good people. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people surround themselves with toxic people. I've always been so blessed to surround myself with on a friendship level. There's always been times professionally or there's been times professionally where I've been surrounded by people that I shouldn't have been surrounded by. But on a friendship level and on a family level, I've always been extremely blessed to be surrounded by really, really good core group of people. It was also, I know like, I can remember, I can put myself back in that place. And it was always fighting for that light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. You know, it was always mm -hmm. knowing there was going to be that light at the end of the tunnel and just knowing that I had to put my head down and get there. And there's always those times where you're like, shit, I'm not going to show up for this shift. Shit, I'm going to blow this thing off. Mm -hmm. And it, I never did because I just always knew that it would always add up to something bigger at the end of the day. And even that one small shift blow off could end up changing something in, in my course. You know what I mean? And so it was the con it was the consistency throughout and knowing that at the end of the day, I was going to get to a place that was that was a better place than where I was just struggling to survive. That kind of leads to my next question. Was there ever like an instance of maybe anything that happened that brought you very close to quitting just saying, you know what? Fuck it. I'm done. Did you ever get to that point? Um, yeah. So when I was, when I was taking my, uh, my, you have to take tests, entrance exams to get into law school and uh, your master's in uh, business. I did well on my GMAT, which is what gets you into your MBA. I got a scholarship because I did well on my GMAT. I didn't do well on my LSAT. I mean, well's relative, but I didn't do as well as I know that I could do. And I didn't get into what I thought was the school that I should go to. You know, like I, got, I went to Cal Western, which is a good law school. I, I'm happy that I went there now. But it was a, a defeated time because the, the other people that I was friends with that were going to law school were going to Berkeley's and, you know, Vanderbilt's and 
I'm the guy that I held myself to a higher standard and I'm going to what to me was a sub-level law school. And it, it, it got me close to where I was going to quit because I didn't think that I was going to be able to get to the place that I'd built up in my head going to a low-level school. Now I look back on it and I just laugh because none of that shit even matters. But that was a really, really hard time for me to transition through because I felt like I'd let myself down. So how do you pick yourself up if you were feeling that low? And My mom. I remember that. I called my mom, like, just destroyed. And perspective, like, again, being able to watch what she did in survival mode. It's like once you can, like, once I got her, her perspective on the situation and her how proud she was of me that I'd already made it in her eyes in San Diego and what I was doing and the person I was and how I was treating people. You just get to a place where the other dumb shit is dumb shit, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I just was like, whatever, like you, let's just roll forward. And then I realized very early on, once I was in Cal West and in that, that I, the things that made me unique were going to make me unique regardless if I was at Harvard or if I was at Cal West, you know, and the things that made me, me were going to continue to propel me forward as long as I just kept doing the things that I was doing. So once I realized that it just started to flow. And I think that there is like a life flow. And once you find it, it's a really powerful momentum. And I was lucky that I was able to fly find that consistent life flow at that point in time. And it just, it's kept with me. Like I still have that. that was, you were saying that right now, as you said, the word perspective, that was exactly what I was thinking in my head is just all about perspective. And I mean, anything that happens in life, if you have the ability or the will to just change how you are looking at something, it just completely makes all the difference in the world. People don't realize how lucky we all are. Like we're living in the best city in the country, like the best city in mm -hmm. the country. Fuck whatever anyone else tells you. Like <laughs> this is right the there. best city <laughs> in the country. And we're all lucky enough to have food on our table, roofs overhead. You know, it, it, it's when you break down what it is to be, you know, living in San Diego in this situation, we're all blessed times 10. And so I think that we all have to remember that constantly. I'm lucky now because I get a deal in a space with people that have their lives turned upside down. So I get a constant perspective reminder every single day, which is one of the things I love about my work because I don't have bad days because how am I going to have a bad day when Susan George were walking down the gas lamp last night and got taken out by a taxi that was turning that wasn't paying attention and now Susan's in the hospital with a fractured hip and George has to have a spine surgery. Like, that's a bad day. Mm -hmm. I'm having good days every day. Even when there's fires, I'm having good days. So it's a constant perspective. It's a constant balance. It's a constant check of yourself and your ego and realizing what's really important in life. You know, it's funny because Dan called me last night. I think it was some sort of rudimentary question or like, I said, hey, don't embarrass me tomorrow on the podcast. <laughs> and, and that's all the conversation was. And the next thing we know, it's like a half hour later and we got into some sort of deep talk about this. And, uh, I, I slept on some of the stuff we were talking about cause we were talking about happiness. And I, I, like I said, I was able to go watch an interview this week and the guy was asking some, some similar stuff about the Ferraris and lifestyle and all that. And, and we kind of, we, we rounded the bend and said, you know, there's happiness, there's fulfillment. I think people chase happiness and they forget about the fulfillment part. And I kind of boxed it up into your specific box and said, like, happiness is a Ferrari. Fulfillment, fulfillment's when you put the key in, where does the Ferrari go? Yep. And I think most people want that Ferrari and they don't know where to go and they miss out on the fulfillment. Where I feel like when you left the million dollar salary and you had all the bells and whistles, you figured out where the fuck you were going. Yep. You know? And I think that that's, uh, that for me, like, and, and, comes great into perspective since we're talking about it right now was probably key. And I'm speaking on your behalf because I didn't know you when you were the salaried uh, attorney at yep. the other law firm, but I feel like you've, you found fulfillment. I did. I did. Mm -hmm. And it messed with me when you said it last night like that, because I hadn't like thought about it in that perspective of the, you know, the happiness compared to fulfillment, but that's exactly like, that's the best way that I've heard it communicated is that is mm -hmm. that, happiness isn't fulfillment. It's not the same thing. They don't mm -hmm. fit in the same box. And so 
But happiness is still, I mean, it, you, you still need it. And that's, that's why I is. say like you, you buy the nice house, but what goes in the house? Yeah. You know, that's a fulfillment. I, I yep. feel like it's not, not, not bashing at all. And like, you, you might want a nice watch or you want shoes or whatever. But then it's like, where are you going with that? Is yeah. where people like, they kind of, that's a dead end. Cause you can't, you can't build your life around those things. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the, what I'd like. My constant thing is I'm, I just try to build my life around the things that make me happy. That's truthfully like in, in candidly, one of the reasons why I love working with you boys. Like, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like there's plenty of marketing companies, but I enjoy being around you guys. Like it adds to my life. It adds to the things that I, that I enjoy. And so that's, that's a piece, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's a, a block that I get to build in my life. And that's the way that I've kind of started to compute things and to, you know, make decisions is how is this going to add to my, as Pete says so well, my baseline fulfillment. Mm -hmm. That's cool, man. So you, you mentioned flow and the flow. I want to hear now what, what's your today current Dan? Like what's your flow like? hectic crazy so we were uh <laughs> i know that i, I mean that. it's just of course i love it so much we were at jamming 95 7 this morning with uh frankie and tati we we're doing a little so our biggest thing when we started this firm was it's going to be a community firm you know what i mean and not not a fake community firm not a hey we're doing this because we want attention no we're going to give back to the community and make a difference in san diego we give a piece of every single case we settle back to the community to dog rescues veteran nonprofits, friends of Scott, which is amazing, tons and tons of organizations that we work with. Well, Jam and 957 this morning, they asked us if we would be their community partner to do and recognize people and individuals that were in the community and that are doing good things and giving back to San Diego. So I got to go on this morning and bring on multiple people that were, you know, are doing amazing things in San Diego and honor them. We gave them a $150 gift card and a bunch of bulldog swag. And it's just an ongoing thing that we're doing with them to try to spread positivity in the community. So that was my morning. We were in studio. Now we're here filming the podcast from here i have two meetings i have two new clients that i got to go meet with at the office and then i have a haircut because my hair is ridiculously long right now and then i'm back to the office for two more meetings and then tonight we have a hummus event that i'm not even really sure what a hummus event is but my habibi law partner paul will be there sampling all the hummus because that's his thing i'll be the white guy that's there that's asking what hummus is and that's pretty much the day. And then, you know, hanging out with the Bulldogs, which is how I close off every day. So in that flow, what gets you the most excited? And it doesn't have to be just today. Like, what are, what are you like? Maybe people don't know about it. What are you right now that gets you out of bed, out of, off the couch, all the other stuff? Is there something in particular that you're like? People. Just people. I get to be, like, yeah. I think that's the biggest thing that I got going for me right now is... I don't feel like I work because the people that I'm surrounded by are like the people I'd want to be around. So I walk into the office and it's, it's family and we're joking and we're having fun and we're messing around. And it's, I look forward to it every single day just because they give me energy. So yeah, the, the people that I get to be around constantly is, it, are the biggest, the biggest motivators for me at this point in time is yeah, I'm surrounded by people I love. Epic man. If there was, if there is one thing for someone who is watching or listening, who right now they're in the weeds, right now they're in school, right now they're valeting cars, right now they're serving tables, busing tables, whatever it is they're doing, and they're kind of looking down the road and it's, it's hairy and they're in the thick of it, what would you, in the shortest uh, piece of advice, what would you give them as far as advice goes? Okay. My shortest advice, if you're in the weeds and you're not really sure where the end of the tunnel is, this is first, you got to audit the people that are around you. If you got shitty, toxic people that aren't adding to your life, you need to cut them out right now because you're not going to be able to get through that grind. You're not going to be able to get through what you need to get through with those type of people in your life. So that needs to be numero uno. Be careful who's in your life right now. The second thing that you need to do is you need to figure out how you can get some perspective on your situation because I can guarantee you, even if you think your situation is shit, it's not when you have some perspective. So what I would recommend is you need to go volunteer somewhere. Go down to a soup kitchen go mm -hmm. do something like that give some of your time back to some other people that 
need your time and you will see that it will instantly change your whole energy and your whole perspective about your grind. The other thing that I think is really, really important is you need to know where you need to be or where you want to be is probably a better way to put it. And you should try to start reaching out to people that are there. And you should try to start asking them how they got there and what things that they recommend to do to get through the grind. I think that that perspective is huge to let you know that there is that light at the end of the tunnel. If you're closed off and in a box and you don't think you're going to ever be able to dig out, that is a motivation killer. You need to know that there is a way that you will get to the other side. Whatever that other side is that you want it to be. You want to own a bar. You want to do whatever it is. You need to... Find and seek out people, good people that have done it and that are there and pick their brains and they will help carry you along as well. So uh, a lot of it is surrounding yourself with with people. But I think that those are the things that I would recommend to do to someone that's that's in the grinds is check your people that are around you, check your perspective, give back to other people because it's necessary and it will help your life energy and make sure that you drew have some self-awareness and you know where you're trying to go and that it's for the right reasons and then find people that got there the way that you'd want to get there and pick their brains and surround yourself with those people because that will help drag you up i mean that's just the way that it works i love it man um i think we're kind of winding down on time where can anybody listening find you um your law, your, your firm. Keep your eyes open. Bulldogs everywhere in San Diego. We're taking <laughs> over. Literally um, all over town. Everywhere. We I got heard, the, I heard we it's got true. Is it true that if they find you one of your cars out and about, you... Uh, we got... we So I have all my cars wrapped with Bulldogs. If you see them, you, you, you take a picture, you tag us online, we'll send you a bunch of Bulldog swag and a uh, Starbucks gift card. But we also have 40 Ubers and Lyfts that are going to be rolling out all wrapped in Bulldogs in two months. So it'll be a, <laughs> it'll, it'll be a big game of find the Bulldogs. So yeah, if you uh, if you see any of them, take a picture of them, post them online. We'll send you some good stuff. But other than that, Bada Fulkerson on you know Instagram, Facebook, www.bodafulkerson.com. You can find me, Dan Fulkerson, on both as well. And yeah, anyone that's out there that you know, if, if I can help, reach out. I, I'm always happy to help people that, especially good people that are just trying to better themselves and put themselves in a better life position. Love it. Thanks, Dan. Sure, man. Thanks, of course. Thank you guys it. for having me.